I brought my, it's October 30th, the 31st is when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, started the Protestant Reformation, so I brought my Martin Luther mug that says, nailed it. First uh, Peter is where we are going to be. Uh, oh. <laughs> the wrong sermon pulled up on my iPad, so we're going to go acapella with the notes as well. I said last week, and I'll, I'll bring it up again, in, in First Peter, uh, we have Peter the Apostle writing to this group of, of uh, exiled, uh, chosen believers that God has kind of scattered across these known churches, and, and Peter lists these churches, and, and, and a lot of them are facing persecution, and what Peter is telling them is you're going to face more. And so he's writing this letter, kind of preparing these Christians for, for what is going to come. And so he starts in verse 3. And so 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, all the way through verse 12 in the Greek is one sentence. It's just Peter connecting an idea after connecting an idea after connecting idea, trying to start this letter to this group of people that are being persecuted, and it's not like a, a governmental persecution. There's no laws against Christians at this point where these churches were at, but it's this social pressure, and then Nero's going to pull his stunt where he lights Rome on fire, blames the Christians, and he starts lighting Christians on fire later. All of that's going to take place in the next about five years after Peter wrote this book. And so what he's saying is, is, is this is just chocked full of things. So initially, I, I, I told Morgan this. I don't think I told anybody else. Initially, when I started planning to preach First Peter, I was going to do verses 3 through 12 as one sermon. Uh, and then each of the sermons we've had would have been just one point in that sermon. And I was like, this is like three hours long. And I thought, you would probably leave if I did that. So just in the middle, like just go and walk out the door. And so I said, well, we'll just break it up instead. So really what you can think of the last two sermons in this one are is one long sermon where we've just kind of focused on each of the points of this sermon that Peter's given us. See, the goal uh, that, that he has is he started out by saying that there's this uh, uh, great mercy that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God has, has blessed us with, has given to us if we're believers. And if we have that great mercy, then God has given us this new life. And if we have this new life, this new birth, then we have a living hope. Jesus, didn't, Jesus died, but he was resurrected. He didn't stay dead, so our hope is not dead. Our hope is alive as Jesus is alive. And with Jesus' resurrection, we have this inheritance that God calls us to that's not perishing, it's not defiled, it's not fading. It's an inheritance that's held in heaven by God for us. And so Peter calls these persecuted Christians to rejoice while you're mourning, which is just the greatest of all things, right? You're about to be persecuted. You're about to be hurt. You're going to cry because you're losing all of these things. And in all of that, go ahead and just rejoice because of what God has for you. That what you're facing, the trials that are coming, the experiences that you're going to have will pale in comparison to the great mercy, the living hope, the inheritance that God has for us. And in fact, those trials that you're going through, Peter tells us, are actually going to purify your faith. It's like gold being set in a furnace where the, the goldsmith just scrapes all the impurities off until he sees his reflection in the gold. That those trials that you're going through will purify your faith, but they will also help you to trust your faith too. That if you can survive those trials, if you can survive those persecutions, then it's real. It's genuine. And the goal of all of that, the goal of the faith, Peter tells us, is to obtain a salvation for our souls. 
to be saved. Now, if Peter wanted to, he could have put a period right there and moved on to the next point that he had. The next point he'll bring up is that because of this great salvation that God has for us, this great mercy, we're called to live pure lives. Be holy because God is holy. That's the the next part that Peter has. And he easily could have put a period there and walked to that point. But in uh, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's not what Peter does. He gives us three more verses before he moves on to that next point. And so what does Peter do in these verses? Well, he's showing us how this book that we have, This letter that he's writing, all of the book, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all of the Bible is the word of God. That God has revealed these things to us, revealed himself to us in a text. We don't need a new revelation from God. We need to look at what God has already revealed. And we can have confidence in the Bible because the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true, then it needs our focus and it needs our attention. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, and then we'll pray and break it down just like we always do. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have been now been announced to you through the preached uh, preached to the through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we do get to gather today. God, we thank you so much that we can sing songs like grace, grace, wonderful, marvelous grace. There's nothing we do to earn that grace from you, God. It's a gift. I pray as we look at this text of Scripture, what you would do to us this morning is help us not to, to doubt what the Bible says, but God, help us to fall more in love with your word. God, your word is not detached from who you are. You, in your character, in your perfection, in your providence, in your sovereignty, have given us these 66 books of the Bible, your word for us to know you better and how to live that out in our everyday lives. Help us to understand your words more. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. So that this salvation that Peter's talking about, if you remember the previous passages that we've walked through, that's how Peter ended. We talked last week about how it was like a chain that Peter was just adding links to. And it starts with, really in verse 2, where Peter says this act of salvation is done by the Godhead three in one. We have the the foreknowledge of God, we have the uh, sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and then we have the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ, the obedience to God that 
calls us to be saved. And because of that, we have this great mercy, this link in the chain that's linked to God. And because of the great mercy of God, we see then that we have a new birth. And because of the new birth, we have a living hope. And because of the living hope, we have an inheritance. And because of this inheritance, we have faith. And because of this faith, we can rejoice in everything that's been previously connected, even though there's going to be trials and circumstances that are trying to those things. And that the goal of these links of the chain, the goal of this faith that's hanging on here is the salvation of our souls, another link in the chain. And so now Peter's saying this salvation, talking about everything that he's mentioned beforehand, again, it's one sentence. He says, the prophets prophesied about the grace that would come to you. Let's just think about that for a minute. Every year, or with the kids' ministry especially, we sit down and try to help them memorize the books of the Bible. Maybe you have the the books of the Bible memorized. I'm confident I can do most of the Bible books in order, but there's one section in the Bible that always gives me fits, and I am not confident I could tell you the names exactly right. It's the prophets, especially the minor prophets, because there's names in there like Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Zephaniah. Those don't sound real sometimes. Sometimes I'm like, I just may make up a name and throw it out there, and I don't think we would even know. It's those prophets that Peter's talking about. See, what Peter's doing is he's affirming the Old Testament as the word of God. So let's think about this, because there's an argument that sometimes people will make that there's two gods, that there's a God of the Old Testament who's vengeful, angry, and just likes to smite people with lightning and thunder and hailstorms. And then there's this New Testament God that's very soft and very kind and very loving and gives grace and gives mercy to all of these things, that there's these two, at least, characters of God. But that's not what the Bible says. It's the same God. It's the same character. God does not change. If God had to change, then it means one of two things. Either he was not perfect and changed to be perfect, which the Bible rejects that God is perfect and always has been, or that God was perfect and he changed to move away from perfection, which the Bible rejects. God does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible tells us. That should be a comfort to us. So much things in our world and our life just are constantly changing, but God does not. He's steady and anchor. So the same God who inspired the Old Testament prophets is the same God speaking through Peter right here in this letter. And what that means is all scripture is profitable. Not just the parts that we like, not just the new. All of the Bible is the word of God. We should know all of the Bible. Written by the Holy Spirit. So there's this central theme. Even there's there's different human authors. And God uses their personalities differently through various times in Scripture. Certain ways that authors write and differ from other ways. God uses those personalities in these these men to write his word. This one central message initially and, and really written by the Holy Spirit. There's one theme. And so what we see that Peter tells us is these, these Old Testament prophets prophesied about the grace that would come. This favor, this mercy, this, this gift from God. They didn't get to experience God's grace the same way you and I do. Now listen, 
We know from Old Testament passages and New Testament passages that Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, etc. were saved by the grace of God in faith just like you and I. God has always saved the same way. It's never been done by works. The only difference between us and them is we stand and we put our faith in the past tense happening of the cross. We look back at the gospel and see what Jesus did while their faith was looking forward to the gospel and what God would do. So the prophets are writing these things. They knew this was revelation from God. They knew that their words were more than just simple letters or stories or things that they were penning. In fact, we're told that that by Peter that they searched and carefully investigated their own writings, trying to understand how God was going to display his grace better. I, I like to think about these men who had been inspired by the Holy Spirit. They don't have Netflix. They have nothing to do. And so I imagine much of the things that they wrote down, they probably had memorized, yet they're investigating and searching their own writings, trying to understand God more, trying to see how God would reveal the, himself to them more. And if they're doing that with their own writings, how much more should you and I be looking into the Word of God too? See, one of the greatest frustrations of our day and our age among Christians is that the Bible is so much more available than it has ever been at any point in history. Men died because they were translating the Scripture. That's one of the reasons the Protestant Reformation happened, because the Scripture was written not in the common language of the everyday man, but on, only in like Latin or various translations that normal people couldn't read. Martin Luther translated it into German because he was in Germany. William Tyndale was killed because he was translating it into English. Yet today, you can download an app and have hundreds of different translations at the tips of your fingers. We have access to more printed Bibles in our own language than anybody else at any point in history ever has. For a couple dollars, you can buy a printed Bible for yourself. Or, even if you don't have a couple dollars, I do not know a church that would not happily give you a Bible and be gracious to do so. You know, you can have apps, like there's free apps that will read the Bible to you. You don't even have to read. You just put your earphones in, and it will read the Bible to you. And for a few dollars, you can purchase an app that has professional readers, like people who are on the Discovery Channel narrating those narrative, uh, those nature documentaries, those real easy-to-listen-to people that have read the Bible, not robots, human beings that have read the Bible and will read it to you. And you can pick different translations and different people, all sorts of ways. But it's a frustration because by nearly every measurement, Christians today read their Bible less than nearly any other time when the Bible has been available. We'll take little snippets, we'll take little verses that we like, we'll get those down, but we do nothing with the rest of Scripture. What if I say to you, could you tell me what the book of Hosea is about? What would you say? What about Haggai? Could you tell me what the book of Haggai is about? Amos. Maybe you're like, those are prophets, and I'm not even sure if they're in the Bible because they're weird names. That's not fair. Prophets are hard to understand. That's fine. Do you know we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all telling the same story of Jesus, yet there's differences in each of the Gospels? Do you know why? Do you know what the differences are? Could you tell me about the book of Jude or Philemon, Titus? 
I'm not saying that to make you feel proud if you can answer those, nor am I saying that to make you feel guilty if you cannot. All I'm saying is that we cannot say we're people of the Bible if we do not know the Bible. And to me, it's no wonder that Christianity is fading into the culture, uh, fading into the background of culture if those who believe the Bible is the actual word of God and that it demands our attention and that it is authoritative for our lives, that it is inerrant and infallible, yet we mindlessly will scroll through social media and we'll veg out on whatever new Netflix show is about whatever old serial killer comes on. If we do that as believers of Scripture and undermine the Bible, then why would somebody who has nothing to do with Jesus ever think it's worth their time? You do not accidentally or unintentionally grow in holiness. You don't just wake up and go, got it down. It takes time. It takes diligence. Listen, this is good news for us in Ira. Better news for Hermley people, but it's good news for us. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good at memorizing things. When we look at the Bible and we see the people that Jesus saves, it's not the academic elites who know everything and have their life figured out. It's the woman at the well caught in adultery. It's the blind man, the beggar at the gate who can't read. Those are the people that the Lord saved. What we need is not to be smarter or to be better. What we need is a desire to know God more. If we have a desire to know God more and we have such access available to us for the word, and there's so many different resources available to you, I will be glad to point you in the right direction. I have a lot of bookmarks on my computer, and I will overwhelm you with podcasts and whatever you want. What Peter's telling us, the point of this, this verse, this passage that means so much, this, this salvation that means so much to, to you and to me was something that the Old Testament prophets had these vague ideas about. But it was something that appealed to them so much, this grace that God had told them he was going to display that they searched their own writings over and over and over again trying to learn more about it. Maybe they missed something. Maybe this time if they read it, the Holy Spirit will show them something different. Maybe they would understand grace better if they read their own writings just one more time. They experienced God's grace. That's how they were saved. But their faith was not in what God had done. It was in what God was going to do that God was going to come, that he was going to make all the wrong things right, that he was going to send the snake crusher, the Messiah, the Christ. They believed that wholly and truly. Verse 11. They, that's the prophets, inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This verse makes me smile when I read it. These Old Testament prophets were looking ahead to the coming of Christ, and what are the two things they wanted to know? The time and the place. Who and why God is going to come. And what do we do now? What are so many Christians infatuated with? The time and the place of the second coming of Christ. It's just a cyclical cycle, isn't it? But Peter tells us, the Spirit of Christ is is what the Holy Spirit's called here. It's a name for the Holy Spirit. It's used in the Bible, but it's not a super common name. Every time that name is used, that title is used for the Holy Spirit, it's a reference uh, to to, uh, a couple things. One, it's pointing us towards Jesus and the Father, send the Holy Spirit out. It's also showing us that one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is to exalt and to magnify the work of Jesus. 
the prophets knew in advance that this grace that was so wrapped up in this salvation would come, that there's going to be sufferings, plural, of the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, this snake crusher that's going to come. And then, after the sufferings, plural, there would be glories, plural, for this Christ. The order is so important for us to see here. Remember who this letter is to initially. These Christians who are suffering and who are going to suffer more. And what Peter is saying is, don't worry. Your God understands what you're going through. He was rejected by friends. He was betrayed. He had an illegal trial. He was lied about. He had a crown of thorns shoved on his head. He had a cat of nine tails whipped across his back. He had to carry his cross. He had nails in his hands and feet. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. All of that was known to a degree by the prophets. What I'm going to do is just rapid fire read some of these Old Testament prophecies for you because they're just, they moved me when I was reading Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we did did not value him. That's from Isaiah. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from the words of my groaning? If that sounds familiar, that's what Jesus prays on the cross. In the midst of suffering and anguish, Jesus' mind recalls a psalm. Amos 8, 9. And in that day, this will be a declaration of the Lord. I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the land in the daytime. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before she, her shearers. He did not open his mouth. Psalm 34, 20. He protects all his bones. None of them is broken. Did you know that none of Jesus' bones are broken on the cross? It's one of the prophecies that's fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 9. He was, uh, uh, he was assigned a grave with the wicked but he was a rich uh, but he was at he, but he but he was with a rich man at his death because he did uh, he had done no violence and he had spoken no deceit all of those are from the old testament referencing the sufferings of Jesus Christ in the new and the reality is we could go on i cut those short there is far more references But at the same time, after the sufferings comes the glories. We can look and see the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the ruling and reigning with God, the the coming kingdom, etc. All these glories that were promised that are also promised in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And I continued to watch in the night visions, and suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that, uh, that those of every people and nation and language should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's Daniel. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You will see a virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. I wonder how many times Isaiah prayed, God, help me understand what that means. But the grace is going to come from there. Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. 
2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish his, uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalm 89, 29. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as heaven lasts. Isaiah 9, 7. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The Old Testament prophets prophesied and read their words trying to understand the grace of God that was going to come. And what we see is all of the Bible is about Jesus. That the gospel is all about Jesus. We never move past Christ. He accomplished the Father's plan. It's Jesus' righteousness and sacrifice that the Holy Spirit applies to us if we're believers. So listen, the Bible certainly has morals and it has values and it has rules and it has laws and it has stories and it has points that we should abide by. But all of those things are secondary to the main point of Scripture, which is Christ and Him crucified. That God sent His own Son to do the work of salvation for us, that He died in our place. So we can live out the laws of the Bible, but if we live out the laws of the Bible without the gospel of Jesus, we're legalists and we're doomed to hell. We have good morals and we can have good values. And if we have good morals and we have good values without the gospel of Jesus, it's not enough and we're doomed to hell. We can't earn our salvation. Laws and morals and values, as good as they are, do not have saving power. They're a result of a salvation that is received, not earned. So we don't obey to be saved. We're saved, so we obey. We have morals and values, not to be saved, but we're saved, so now we have morals and values. They're rooted in something far deeper than us. Think about the people Peter is writing this to. Suffering and going to suffer more. And what Peter is saying is he's saying, I see you. I see what you're going through. I see what you're going to go through. But more importantly than me seeing you, Jesus sees you too. And when you suffer and when you're persecuted, you look more like Jesus than when you don't. He too suffered and died. But look, glories come after the suffering. So in your suffering that's present and in the suffering that's coming, know that the suffering isn't the end. That in the end, glories come after suffering. Be encouraged is what Peter's telling them. Verse 12, and it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you that those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, that angels longed to catch a glimpse of these things. See, the word revealed there is important for us to to catch on to. That's what we need to think about when we think of what the Bible is. It's God revealing himself to us. When I was growing up, the Nintendo 64 was kind of like the last video game console that I was good at. Um, That was it. After that, it was a huge and steep decline. (laughs) I'm pretty good at the uh, 
Wii games over in the youth building, but it's like Wheel of Fortune from 2007, and so I got those prices down. One of the things growing up that before the internet and, and before you like had all this other video game things that happened was you would go to the store, whatever game you got, there was a book you could buy at the store that had all the cheat codes, that had the maps, that had everything that you're supposed to do, hidden levels, all these secret things that you could buy that would make it easier to, to conquer the game or to beat it. And so uh, if you had that, the game was a lot easier. And you knew all the secrets, knew all the trips. What I did, we were broke, because I just hung out with my buddies who had the game and had the code map, and they would just tell me what to do. Far too often, that's what we treat the Bible like. It's like it's this thing that we buy that's kind of secondary to our life, but if we open it up to the right passage, then they give us these cheat codes that makes life easier or more comfortable. But you know that in reality... There's not one passage in the Bible that says you should be comfortable. There's not one passage in Scripture that says life should be easier for you. Repeatedly, over and over, what we see in the Bible is you should be holy. And when we're holy, when we're saved by God and he sanctifies us, he justifies us, it's harder to maintain the life that we used to live. It's harder to maintain a life that is compliant with what the world has going on. We're just different and when we're different what ends up happening is persecution comes more and more this gospel this bible reveals also to us that like it's just not all like hey get saved and then just get beaten to death until you go to to which you do die and then go into heaven with jesus the bible also says all of the sufferings that come pale in comparison to the glory of christ now it's worth living these things out. And so Peter tells us that these prophets had it revealed to them, right, that they were writing things to their initial audience, but a lot of the things they were writing wasn't for themselves. It was for you. It was for us. If you read the prophetic books, and, and after Peter, we're going to walk through one, you'll see that there's two things that happen. One of the things that happens to the prophets is they tell the people, if you obey God's word, then good things happen, and if you disobey God's word, then bad things happen. So many of the prophets are writing, talking about the exile that happens with Israel. If you will keep God's word, you'll be good. If you don't, then you're going to be punished. That's primarily what those messages are about. But there's also some things they say that talk about the coming of Christ that they don't fully understand. It confuses them until God reveals to them that this isn't for them, that it's for us. And so if we look back at prophecies, we see how God was orchestrating all of this from before the foundation of the world. That all of history, even though there's times it looked like God didn't know what he was doing. We can look back at history and say it looks like God doesn't care in certain seasons or God gave up or God was just not good at being God. But in reality, if we look at the whole course of history and we understand our, our history, we understand what God is doing, then we can see that even in those times when it was dark on this side of it, we can understand what God is doing. You know that Alexander the Great was one of the most pagan men who's ever lived? Conquered most of the known world, but he was a great military leader, and at the time he led, it meant he was bloodthirsty. Super young, able to conquer most of the known world. He has a, a lament in one of his writings where he says, there's no more of the world for me to conquer, like his life was done now that he had finished doing all these things. Could not care less about God. Yet without Alexander the Great, the gospel would not have spread like it did in the early church. Do you know this? When Alexander the Great conquered the known world, he brought in a common language. 
everybody had to speak Greek. And so when the Apostle Paul goes on his missionary journeys hundreds of years later, it's easy for him to share the gospel because it's all in Greek. Different nations, different tribes, different people that all had been conquered by this pagan man. God used him, of all people, to push the gospel, to share the gospel with others. As strong and as great of a military leader, as good of a king as Alexander was, he's dead now and he's not king now. But God is king. I think about that story and then I think about the families that must have been conquered while he was there. The Christians that he likely killed. The wives begging and pleading with God, why would you allow this pagan man to take my husband, to take my kids' fathers, the kids growing up without dads because he had destroyed their family? I imagine in those moments it was extremely hard to see what God was doing. Imagine in our suffering and in the hard times that we have in our life, it's often extremely difficult to see what the Lord is doing. And oftentimes we may suffer for things that we never really fully know about. We don't trust that in this life our sufferings pan out to something valuable. We trust that God, who is the Lord of us, we trust in him. And whatever he sends our way, we rejoice in. I don't want to delve too deeply into this, but but I do think there is a a nuance here we need to talk about, which is this idea of prophecy and its misunderstanding and its misuse. We say words like prophecy, and then there's some churches or some denominations or some cults that will, will give a certain person or a certain figure this idea of they're speaking prophecy for God. And so if you do anything against what they say, then you're really breaking the word of God. That's not biblical prophecy. Grab one of the kids' hardback Bibles we got and just whoop them. The Bible is not primarily about you and me. We're the little kid in the school play that we're the tree standing in the background at best. It's about God. And so prophecy that's biblical is taking how God has revealed himself to us and proclaiming it. It's not a new revelation. It's re-revealing what God has said. And we believe that the Bible, God's word, is inerrant, it's infallible, it's authoritative, that there's 66 books of the Bible that's God's word not what some wannabe celebrity pastor claims to have seen now, I do believe that God uses men's words for us but it's not a way of thinking that it's God's very word so let me, let me share this story with you in, in Tulia I was a youth pastor there and I was struggling at a point I was young in, in ministry and when we had kids that were gone to some I don't know something they were just gone they weren't at church for a little while and I was frustrated and, and honestly a little bit hurt and so a deacon of the church came, and I was talking to him, and, and he said this line that, that has stuck with me forever, and I still think about it now. He said, you enjoy those who come, and you miss those who don't. And what it did for me, what it helped me to understand was, was that my job as a pastor is not to fill pews or to fill offering plates. My job is to proclaim the gospel, that I can't control things I can't control. And so week in and, and week out, I mean, it's been a, a blessing. And for one, I saw this deacon later on in, in life, and I was talking to him, and I was trying to encourage him. I was like, listen, you told me this when I was young. I'm st- like, you know, and, and it's helped me so much. He has zero recollection of ever saying that to me. 
he was like, are you sure it was me? And I, I remember it. I was like, yes, it was you. I know it was you. I believe God used that phrase in my life. It's not the Bible. I wouldn't say he was prophesying. We were just talking ministry. It was helpful, and the Lord used him in that moment in a way that he doesn't even remember. And then Peter tells us, it's these things that have been preached to us. It's not some secret life. It's not some cheat code words that's coming. It's what the prophets had revealed to them about this grace that was coming. It was Jesus that was preached. Preached. An important word. It's one of the reasons why the Sunday morning gathering is so important for our faith. That the gospel is preached here. And preaching is different than teaching. We need to understand the difference. Preaching is, is this proclamation of good news. We don't talk a lot when I preach. It's a proclamation of what's going on. Teaching is a more conversational, more relatable, walking through texts of Scripture. There's a nuance there that's important for us. And he says, How is the Holy Spirit, or how was the, the how do we preach the good news? How is the, the good news preached to us? It was through the Holy Spirit. Do you see? We preach. What God has revealed, his word, and it's from the one who wrote the word, the Holy Spirit, that he takes those words and he applies them to the hearts who hear the message. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. In the Godhead, in the Trinity, there is no jealousy. There is no envy. There is no sin. It's a perfect relationship. And then there's this obscure little deal at the very end of this passage that's so interesting. Peter tells us that the angels long to see this kind of salvation. We've talked about angels a little bit. Angels are, are and human beings are two different created things. So, so uh, your deceased relatives don't, don't become angels. And we know that angels do not reproduce. They don't have children. There's a set number. What we also know is that angels don't experience salvation like we do. Yet they're infatuated. The angels seek to glorify God better and better. That's one of the ways that we know they, they're messengers. Right? We see them in Scripture singing often, bringing messages from God. And so they're singing and they're bringing these messages from God. And so they're, they're watching the salvation play out. They're, they're leaning over. They're exerting effort to watch how God is going to use this grace to glorify himself. And they worship God because of it better. They glorify God better. Joe, in Revelation, I won't read it, but there's a song in, in Revelation that we sing in heaven with the saints and with the angels. And you know what the song is? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The angels sing that song because they're watching the salvation play out in front of them. It's this idea that that, that God's great plan of salvation is beautiful, that this grace that God lavishes upon us is beautiful, that his great mercy that was talked about at the beginning of this sentence that Peter started is phenomenal. That all of the Bible is about Jesus. Romans 1, 1 through 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Romans 16, 25 through 27, not to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the uh, proclamation about Jesus Christ, but according to the revelation of the mystery that's been kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through prophetic Scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever. Amen. Did you know after Jesus 
died and then was resurrected. One of the stories in, in Luke that happens is there's these guys, they're walking on the road to Emmaus after Jesus has been resurrected, and, and he's kind of making these appearances around, and these two guys are talking about everything that's happened. It's like these women came back from the womb, or the, from, not the womb, these from the tomb. Two different stories. Uh, these women are coming back from the tomb, and it's empty. And there's all these rumblings about these appearances. I mean, that, that changes it a lot, right? If they come back from an empty womb, but that's, it's, that's Sarah and Abraham. That's Genesis, way different. And so all of a sudden, this third stranger shows up on the road with these two men. And he's like, what are you guys doing? And they're talking about these things. And he's like, well, tell me about them. And they're like, how do you not know these things? Like, it's, it's all over the, the uh, Jerusalem Twitter at the time. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's it, asking these questions. What's going on? How has this happened? Why is the tomb empty? Jesus is coming around like, is this real? Is this not real? And so this third person who's walking with them is Jesus, but he's blinded, and they can't tell that it's Jesus. And he says this in Luke 24, 25, and he said to them, how foolish you are. <laughs> how slow to believe that all of the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Man, to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. This walk, as they're walking along, and this man is just opening the Bible and interpreting it for them. And I love what happens next. They, they get to their house. It's at the end of the day, and Jesus is like, I'm going to go walk on a little bit further. And these guys are like, no, no, we're going to feed you dinner, and you're going to sit and just continue talking to us. And so they sit down, and then Jesus breaks the bread. And as soon as he breaks the bread, they realize it's Jesus who's been walking with us. And Jesus vanishes in that moment and he goes back to Jerusalem. And these are what these two men say. Luke 24, 32. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That's what the gospel's meant to do. That's what the word of God is meant to do. It's not meant to be this book that we have to take care of, that we have to read, and that we have to drudge our way through. It's meant to be something that reveals Christ to us to the point to where our hearts burn and they stir within us. Do you know what the men do after this? It's nighttime, they're ready eating, they're ready for bed, and they put their shoes back on and they run to Jerusalem to go tell everybody what happened. When God saves us, if God saves us, when we're believers in Jesus Christ, the word of God becomes so important to us that it burns within us and it gives us this desire that stirs our affections, that stirs our longings, that moves us. That these prophets who wrote those words down would intently look back at their own words to try to figure out what this grace of God was, that these angels who aren't saved like we're saved are longing to look into this salvation that you and I, if we're believers, get to experience, that these men who didn't know who Jesus was until he reveals it to them had their hearts burning inside of them when God was opening up his word and revealing what it meant to them. So the question that this text best begs us to ask is, does your heart burn with a love for the word? Does this salvation that God has provided change how we live? Or is it just a status that we claim and then we continue to live life like a lost pagan person? The gospel is so much more than get out of hell and continue living like it. It's a fundamental change from death to life. 
And we know this because of the revealed word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that your, your Bible is one message. It tells one story, God, about your great mercy, your great grace, your great love. The idea that you would love rebels like us is beyond anything I can imagine. Yet your word is clear, you do. And you love us so much, God, that you take it upon yourself to pay our punishment that we deserve. The just wrath for our sin, for our rebellion. And God, not only do you pay the punishment for us, but you impute to us, you credit us with your righteousness. So that, God, now we can live debt-free and holy, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. Pray that your word would seep into our hearts. Your gospel would seep into our souls and that our hearts would burn to know you more. And then in turn, God, this wouldn't just be us sitting in a room getting all academic and knowing you, but it would motivate our feet to move. That you would burn our hearts for your word and that you would burn our hearts to share this gospel with people around us who are lost and dying who need a hope that's not dead. Move us in you this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.